Well, as, as many of you know, uh, if you were here last weekend, I guess, uh, Aaron and I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip to Ecuador over uh, the week of Thanksgiving, so, so not even a month ago. And we were part of a team that visited the church and the Compassion Project that LifePoint helped to start all the way back in 2013. Now, of course, the best part of this trip was having the opportunity to build relationships with the people of Choni. We got to spend time with the kids who attend the Compassion Project. We ran a, a small VBS for them each afternoon. We played a bunch of different games. Uh, we got to even serve them a, a meal each and every day at the project. And it was just great to be able to pour into their lives for a little bit of time that week. We were also able to minister to the, to the staff at the Compassion Project, the six individuals who are responsible for the 200-plus kids who come to the project every single week. I don't know how they do what they do, right? Sometimes I feel like my three children are 200 in my house, and so I don't know how they manage that kind of chaos. But we, were, we just so enjoyed being able to support them and encourage them as well as they've been doing ministry nonstop. Another aspect of, of the trip that I really enjoyed was simply being able to learn more about Compassion. It was an organization that I was somewhat familiar with, but certainly didn't know all the details, didn't know how, how they worked things out from all, all the logistics and, and how they made that ministry run. And, and so it was just great to see firsthand how God is working through them to release kids from poverty in Jesus' name. That's their mission. That's their vision, if you will. Of course, one of the primary ways Compassion fights against poverty is, is working with sponsors uh, who give $38 a month to provide food and clothing and medical care to these sponsored children. And obviously, this is a significant part of their ministry. This is how they provide those, some of those tangible needs to those kids. They also fight poverty by instructing the kids at the project in, in four primary areas. They teach them as they come to the project in, in four primary areas, certainly uh, spiritually, right? They, they talk about Jesus and his love for them and the hope that he gives. They address the socioeconomical element of poverty. They talk about the cognitive element of poverty and how that affects their, their mindset of how, and, and how that plays into a, a part of them being in the situation they're in. And also, certainly, they address the physical realities, not only of their own conditions, but just how they should treat their bodies, hygiene, all of those types of things. And then, of course, their fight against poverty, uh, Compassion's fight against poverty, also includes working to build a relationship or working to build a connection between the sponsor and their child. And the primary way that they build this connection is through the exchange of letters. Now, in the grand scheme of things, right, when you consider all that compassion does and how they're fighting against poverty in all of these countries around the world, it seems like letter writing, I mean, that seems like the least significant component or piece of compassion's efforts to release kids from poverty. I mean, I can easily make a case for why the $38 that, that someone would give every, each and every month is, is more important than writing letters, and certainly it's easy to understand how educating all of the kids in these four main areas will help them escape poverty over time. But letter writing, I mean, it, it just kind of seems like fluff when it comes to accomplishing Compassion's mission. I mean, yeah, it's nice to be able to exchange letters, but it doesn't really seem all that essential to helping kids escape extreme poverty. And if letter writing was obviously significant more people would be intentional 
about writing letters regularly. Now, on, on the bus rides that we would take each and every day from the hotel we were staying at to the Compassion Project, uh, one of the Compassion staff members would, would get up and they'd just share a little story or two or some of the logistical details about Compassion. They'd kind of help us understand that particular organization a little bit more. Well, on one ride that we had to the project, they told us about a, a story of a Compassion child from, I believe it was Haiti. And, and I'll give you the Cliff Notes version of this story. Now, like every compassion kid, she lived in extreme poverty. Her circumstances obviously made her life very difficult. And her circumstances weighed heavily on her. And after living for so many years in a situation that seemed hopeless, she simply lost the desire to live. She lost the desire to keep going, knowing her reality, knowing that chances are things weren't going to change. It was too dark of a situation. And this desire that she felt to end her life eventually drove her to begin executing a plan that would end her life. And so one day she purchased poison and she went to an isolated location in order to ingest it. And while she was there, she opened up her backpack, and it had every single worldly possession she had, all in a single backpack. And, and she opened up that backpack to reach in and grab the poison. And when she did that, a stack of letters from her compassion sponsor caught her eye. You see, her sponsor had been faithful in writing letters to their child over their years in which they were sponsors. And, and these letters were filled with a message of love and a message of hope. And it was upon seeing these letters that this compassion child decided she couldn't take her life. She couldn't end it. And nothing about her situation changed, but why she couldn't end her life is because she knew it would break the heart of her sponsor. And now... That child who almost took her life is an employee of Compassion International. You see, the letters from sponsors seem small. This was certainly my perspective going in. It's like, yeah, okay, this is, this is something fun that we get to do. But how much significance can they really hold? They seem small and insignificant and non-essential. However, these letters are, a vi or are vital to accomplishing the mission of Compassion. And in a similar way, what you and I need to understand is that God often uses the ordinary, humble, small, and seemingly insignificant things in life to accomplish his great purpose, plan, and will. Believe it or not, the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, serves as a reminder of this truth. If you've been with us throughout the Christmas season in this past month or so, uh, we've been in a series called Christ in the Carols, and we've been taking a, look, a closer look at some of these well-known Christmas carols and learning all they have to teach us about who God is and what he's done for us. And as you might have guessed, this morning we're going to be taking a closer look at O Little Town of Bethlehem. But before we dive in and start analyzing some of the lyrics, uh, I simply want to provide you with some of the historical background to this particular Carol. There was a gentleman by the name of Philip Brooks, and he was born in December 13th, 1835. Uh, in his mid-20s or so, uh, this gentleman became the pastor of Holy Trinity Church 
in the city of Philadelphia. And as the pastor, he eventually hired a gentleman by the name of Louis Redner to serve as the church organist. Now, the combination of Brooks' preaching and Redner's music helped lead the church to grow from 30 people to 1,000 people in less than a year, right? In less than a year. And so as you might suspect, Brooks gained this reputation of being one of the most dynamic speakers and preachers in that day. In fact, he became so well known that he was actually asked to give the funeral address or the funeral sermon for President Lincoln following the Civil War. During a sabbatical, after he gave that message in about 1865, during that sabbatical, Brooks took a trip to Israel. And it was on Christmas Eve that he rode horseback from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus. And he decided to write a poem to express how it felt to stand near the place where Jesus was born. The title of that poem was, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And later it was Louis Redner, the church organist, who wrote a melody that turned the poem into the Christmas carol that we are all familiar with today. Now as we work our way through the lyrics of this carol, we're going to be reminded again that the, the, of this truth that God uses the ordinary, the humble, the simple, the seemingly insignificant things to accomplish his great purposes, his great plans. So as we dive in, uh, simply allow me to read the first stanza for you, the first verse for you, and it's going to be on the screen so you can follow along with me. It says, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. You see in this first line, Brooks points out that God's greatest gift came to a little town. Now, just out of curiosity, how, how many of you grew up in a small town? Like, like really small, right? Okay, a, ha a handful of you right now. I grew up in a town called Calumet City, Illinois, and it certainly wasn't known for being a small town. It was known for a lot of other things, um, Unfortunately, one of our claims to fame, or notoriously, I guess I should say, is that we were the murder capital of the south side of Chicago. Um, so a lovely piece of, of, of land, uh, just south of Chicago land area. Uh, my parents still live there. Not sure why. Um, but that's, that's where I'm from. It's a, a town of about 38,000. So again, not, not a small town. Now here's the thing, right? If, if you say, okay, did I grow up in a small town? Or, you know, uh, oh, I'm not sure, sir. It was, was kind of small. I just want to give you some, some little points of, of, or ways to determine if, if the town you are from is, is really a small town, right? Here's, here's some things to help you out. You know your town is small. If the city limits are posted, both of them, on the same sign, right? That is a small town. And you're like, well, where is that even the case? You all, I'm sure, know of a place. There's a little town called Kybers, California. And I'm sure many of you have passed it on your way up to Tahoe on Route 50. And we have a sign of, of this particular uh, sign, right? And that is a small town, right? And it, it's right on Route 50 on your way up to South Lake Tahoe. If you live there, you know I live in a small town. Now, another way to know if you happen to grow up or live in a small town is that nobody uses their turn signal because everybody knows where you're going, right? 
that's where my grandma lived, right? When we would go down to southern Illinois to visit her, there was like three places. A Rite Aid, a Walgreens, don't know why there was both, right? And then the school. Like if you weren't going to one of those three places, maybe a grocery store, like you weren't going anywhere, right? And so nobody needed to use their turn signal because people just knew where you were going. There was no surprises. Another way that you kind of know if your town is small is because a night out on the town is done in about 13 minutes, right? You've done all there is to do. My cousins grew up in Oskaloosa, Iowa. You're like, I've never heard of it. I know, right? I know you haven't because literally what the high school students would do for fun is drive up and down this main strip of road that was about a mile long. They'd get to the other end and just turn around and do it again, right? And my cousins, I would ask them like, oh, you, guys, you guys did this, huh? And they're like, yeah, this is all we had to do. That is a small town, right? And a Terrible place to grow up, in my opinion. <laughs> you also know if you're a small town, if you have to name six surrounding towns so that somebody else can figure out where you live, right? Those of you who are from small towns know what I'm talking about. Now, at the time of Jesus' birth, Bethlehem was a very small town. It was this quiet shepherding community with a population of, of less than 300 people. However, this quiet suburb of Jerusalem did have some notable history, and that's recorded for us throughout Scripture. Bethlehem is first mentioned in Genesis 35, 16 to 19, because it's the place Jacob's wife, Rachel, was buried. And she died giving birth to Jacob's younger, youngest son. And before dying, she gave him the name Benani, which means son of my sorrow. However, Jacob eventually changed the boy's name to Benjamin, which means son of, my, son of my right hand. And what's interesting is that both of those phrases throughout uh, or in Old Testament were both used at one point to describe the Messiah. Just a little piece of, of interesting trivia. Bethlehem is also, again, featured in the book of Ruth. And it was in Bethlehem that Ruth was redeemed. If you know that story, uh, or if you don't, I suggest you read it. It's fascinating. But she was redeemed in, in Bethlehem, and she married a gentleman by the name of Boaz. And it was in Bethlehem that Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed. And Obed, who would eventually be the grandfather to David, was born and raised in Bethlehem as well. It was years after that that Bethlehem, along with all of Judea, was conquered by the Assyrians. And the last person in David's family line had been carried into captivity when the prophet Micah spoke the well-known prophecy in Micah 5, verse 2. And he says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me, or for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old. From ancient times. 700 years after that prophecy was spoken, it led to the wise men finding the birthplace of Jesus. See, the fact of the matter is that God still uses small, seemingly insignificant places like Bethlehem was at that time for great things. One such example, a little bit more current, while still, though, a while back, is, is a small town of Cane Ridge, Kentucky. Cane Ridge was the site of a huge revival in the early 1800s. Chris Joyce was there. I had to. I'm sorry. I had to. I had to. Love you, bud. Um, <laughs> the revival, right? The revival, it lasted for weeks, and it was attended by over 30,000 people. 
Now, believe it or not, the revival was the catalyst for a spiritual awakening that has significance for life point. The revival gave birth to what became the Christian churches and churches of Christ in America today. It began those movements. And under the leadership of Barton Stone and Thomas Campbell, this became the fastest growing church group in the country at that time. And all of this is significant to us because LifePoint is one of the many churches that can trace its roots back to that movement that began in Cane Ridge, Kentucky. Now, if you're kind of continuing this line of thinking or talking about small places, most of you know that within the last year or so, LifePoint purchased three acres of land just behind our building. A small plot of land, right, when you consider all of the land that's still in our surrounding area. And being reminded that God uses small things for his great purposes. Quite honestly, and that gets me excited for what's in store for the future of our church. After all, as Calvin Miller once said, great works of God rarely start in big places. Rather, they start in small places, in some person with big commitment. And we, I think, have the opportunity to be those people of big commitment as we see how God is going to lead us in the years to come. Also, when you talk about thinking of people with big commitment, I want to turn our attention to the second stanza, the second verse of O Little Town of Bethlehem. Allow me to read that for us. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wandering love. O morning stars together, proclaim thy holy birth, and praises sing to God the King, and peace to men on earth. Here in this second verse, Brooks writes, for Christ is born of Mary. And it's this brief line, it's a reminder that, that God's greatest gift came through a humble family. You see, Mary and Joseph are probably two of the most well-known biblical characters. If you were just to kind of take a man on the street pole and say, hey, do you know who Mary and Joseph are? Chances are most people would kind of have an idea or they'd be able to share some thought they had about who these individuals were as it relates to Scripture. I mean, after all, their story has been shared for thousands of years. But it's not like Mary and Joseph were on the cover of tabloids back then, right? It's not like they were part of the rich and famous. It's not like they were big shots. They were just your common, everyday type of people. Joseph was a carpenter. Mary was a simple peasant girl. And yet these lowly, humble people are the ones that God chose to parent his one and only son. Now, if you're familiar with Scripture, this, this probably doesn't surprise you. Because as we've been saying, God has a knack for using small and humble and weak and seemingly insignificant things to accomplish his plan. This is certainly the case of the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 6, we learn that the Israelites once again turn their back on God. That's kind of the theme of Judges. They're doing well. They screw up. Trouble hits, and they have to repent, and on and on this cycle goes. And so Judges, or Gideon is part of this story, and in Judges 6, the Israelites are in this season of screwing up again. And as a result, God gave them over to the hand of the Midianites. And it's for seven years the Israelites experienced severe oppression. 
Eventually, they kind of come to their senses and they cry out to God for help. And he hears their plea. However, God's solution to the problem was somewhat unexpected. Judges 6, 14 and 15 says this, The Lord turned to him, being Gideon, and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. You see, here, even in this one particular story, God chose the weak to save an entire nation. Now, Gideon wasn't the obvious choice to lead the Israelites. He probably wouldn't have been our choice to lead the Israelites, but he was God's choice. We find another example of God using something small to accomplish his plan in John 6, a story I would imagine you're all familiar with. Thousands of people had gathered to hear Jesus teach, and he was also healing them. And in typical preacher fashion, Jesus taught for a long time, and so rather than sending the crowds away at mealtime, he said, hey, the disciples, you guys provide them with food. You feed them. You give them something to eat. Now, the disciples thought Jesus was nuts, but then they started hunting down food in the crowd and say, well, let's see what we can come up with. They had no food to give, and certainly they didn't have enough money to purchase food for everyone. But we all know what happened next. Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish and multiplied it into enough food for everyone to eat until they were full. Yet again, God taking something that's small and seemingly insignificant and accomplishing his plan and his purpose. And this is what you and I need to remember. This is what you and I need to, to know about how God tends to operate. He will use whatever he needs to, whatever ordinary means to accomplish his great purposes. In, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 and 27, he says this, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. See, God loves to show his strength through human frailty. He doesn't require us to be strong. He doesn't require us to be extremely talent, uh, uh, intelligent. He doesn't require us to be amazingly talented. He doesn't require us to be perfect. He doesn't even require that we have the Bible memorized. See, God is just simply looking for people who are willing and obedient, who are willing to be used by him and or who are obedient to his call. And if nothing else, Mary and Joseph were willing and obedient in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, and then verse 24, we, we learn a little bit more about Joseph. It says, this is how the birth of Christ came to be. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
verse 24 says, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. In Luke chapter 1, verses 35 and 38, we see an example of this, of obedience and willingness in the life of Mary. Verse 35, it says, The angel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. You see, she was willing to be used by God. What's unfortunate, though, is I know some of us have probably written ourselves off. For whatever reason, we think, God can't use me. I'm unusable. I'm unfit to be used by God. I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. I've made too many mistakes. However, all of the reasons we give, whether they include this list or not, whatever reasons we give, they're not actual requirements to be used by God. He simply wants to know, are you willing? And are you obedient? And so we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what is the step of obedience that God wants me to take? What's that next step he wants me to take? Where does he want me to go? Is there a conversation he wants me to have? Is there a relationship that you need to mend? Is there a habit that you need to break? Is there a ministry that you need to join? What step of obedience is God calling you to take? And are you willing to take it? And if so, you could be the next broken, small, weak, ordinary person that God uses to accomplish his great plan and purpose. Look with me at the third stanza of O Little Town of Bethlehem. It says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. It's in this third verse that Brooks references this wondrous gift that's given by God. And of course, we know that this gift, the greatest gift that God has ever given, is Jesus, who came as a helpless infant. If you were here right at the beginning of the service, we showed a, a little clip. And, and I love the last line of that video that we, that we showed this morning. And there's a kid that says, the new baby is going to change the world, right? The new baby is going to change the world. And that kid is right. Jesus did change the world. However, the fulfillment of God's plan, it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen in an instant. Well, why? Well, it's because God's great plan to save mankind began with a small, helpless baby. Just like any other child, he was entirely dependent on his parents. See, what's fascinating is that Jesus had to rely on others to raise him before they could rely on him to save them. Now, if you weren't familiar with the gospel message or if you were to go talk to somebody on the street who had never heard of Jesus or never heard the gospel message, they might assume that God would burst onto the scene with this pomp and circumstance to declare salvation for all. We need to save everyone. 
But you see, the reality is that God's greatest plan, even his greatest plan, salvation through faith in Jesus, began with this humble, ordinary birth of a baby. There was no fanfare. There was no fireworks. There was no royal parade. It was just simply the birth of a child, like any other. And if this is how God began the execution of his greatest plan, that it's important for you and I to remember that God is also going to be looking to use the ordinary, the small, the seemingly insignificant things in our lives to carry out his plan. And as we mentioned before, we just need to be willing. We just need to be obedient. The fourth and final verse of Brooks Carroll goes like this, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us we pray, cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. The last verse of Brooks Carroll draws our attention to the fulfillment of God's great plan that began with this helpless infant. God sent Jesus so that one day he might cast out our sin and give us new life in him. Now, chances are within the next 24 hours, the majority of us will be enjoying opening presents and gifts from family and friends. However, before we sit around our Christmas tree to open presents, I wonder if there might be someone here who needs to get a jump start on opening gifts. You see, to each and every one of us, God offers the free gift of eternal life through a relationship with his son, Jesus. Now, we don't deserve this gift, and certainly there's nothing we can do to earn it. The work has already been done when Jesus died on the cross. And like any present that's offered to us, we simply need to receive it and open it. This morning, we've been talking about how God uses ordinary things to accomplish his great purpose. And it just could be that you're here this morning at this ordinary, everyday Sunday morning service so that God can carry out his great will for your life, which is for you to have a saving relationship with his son, Jesus. And we know that's God's desire for you because scripture makes it clear. In 2 Peter verses three, or chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. And so as we close this morning, my hope is that you will make a simple decision that has eternal impact. And if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus for your salvation and you would like to do that this morning, all you need to do is, is admit that you're a sinner, that you need God to save you. You can't save yourself. And then believe, put your faith and trust in Jesus that he died on the cross in order to pay the punishment for your sins, and commit as best as you know how to living your life in pursuit of Jesus. And if you make that decision, you will be opening up the best Christmas gift you will ever receive. For those of you who already know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, let's be sure to remember the reason we celebrate. God sent a humble and lowly young couple to a little town where they gave birth to a helpless baby so that we would one day have the opportunity to say, 
Cast out my sin. Enter in. Be born in me today so we can live a life surrendered to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. God, we're so grateful for the men and women who wrote these Christmas carols that we know and love that teach us so much about who you are and what you've done for us. God, as we look ahead to Christmas and just the enjoyment of celebrating this special day, God, I pray that if there's anyone here who who hadn't made the decision to open up the best gift ever, that you would lead them to do that this morning. And as we celebrate, may we not forget how significant that decision is, God, and how, what, or, and what it led to, you giving your life for us so that we could have life in you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.